This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And before we get started and I introduce everybody, I want to say that as you're listening to this, you know what happened on Election Day this year. We don't. We have not. We are recording this in advance, as promised. We are using Election Week as an opportunity to look way back in the past and uh, maybe not talk about the election at all, though we'll see. But just a note that if it sounds like we're coming at you from the past, we are. And hopefully this is a nice respite from whatever's going on out there. Hope we're all doing OK. So or we'll see you in Uruguay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, what you just heard is uh, our chief credit, Richard Lawson. Hi, Richard. Hello. Sorry, I jumped. Uh, jumped no, the line. this is like a, this is like a blank check style where everyone just starts talking. Uh, we have our senior writer Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us for this, the crossover event of the century, I think, uh, <laughs> the co-host of the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, Joe Reed and Chris File. Hey, Dick Man, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I am so excited to do this episode. I, we talked, we brought up the 2000 Oscars mostly just because it's been 20 years, but it's also a really interesting Oscar race. It's also an Oscar race I think we all have nostalgia for. We were all like roughly teenagers when this happened and kind of young to the Oscar excitement of it all and very invested in it in our own ways. Um, so we're going to talk about the movies. We watched a bunch of them. We're going to talk about what Hollywood was, what the Oscars were at this point. Um, and Joe and Chris, I might just kick it to you immediately because on your podcast, you guys talk about the movies that didn't make it to Oscar nominations, but you do a ton of context and like look back at what the scene was. Um, and Chris, you were saying before we started recording that you guys have done seven 2000 movies that failed to make it to the Oscars. Yeah, it's one of uh, our more popular years. Yeah. So what have you guys learned? Like set the scene for what what Hollywood and the Oscars were doing in 2000 that got us here. Yeah, it's interesting because 2000, the Oscar year that we got was partially a function of the fact that all of the big hyped Oscar buzz stuff bombed that year. Like everything going into like September, October, November, December, like the traditional Oscar season was supposed to be movies like The Legend of Bagger Vance with Will Smith, which was directed by Robert Redford, huge pedigree there. Pay It Forward, which had Kevin Spacey coming off of his Oscar and Helen Hunt coming off of her Oscar and Haley Joel Osment following up The Sixth Sense. There was All the Pretty Horses, which was Billy Bob Thornton, Oscar winner, Matt Damon, who was sort of, you know, screenplay winner and 
very much riding high at that point. And that was the big crossover movie for Penelope Cruz or one of the big crossover movies for Penelope Cruz. And then you had movies like Men of Honor, which was this very like De Niro, Cuba Gooding Jr., again, recent Oscar winner in this sort of great men, buzzy kind of a thing. And nothing did well. Nothing. They were all like critical flops and big disappointments. And I think because of that, all of a sudden then you had the Oscar community, whatever studios with their with their campaigns and everything like that had to reach to different areas. And that's why you get Gladiator, which is a movie that opened in May and is a blockbuster. You know what I mean? Like it was got really good reviews, but it was essentially like it's a crowd pleaser. And then you got Aaron Brockovich, which opened back in March. And you have Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is a foreign language film, which at the time, like it's still now, but like especially at the time was an incredibly rare occurrence. And I don't think you get the best picture field that we get, which is sort of, you know, reaching into different areas of the calendar and of what Hollywood would normally go for if what was expected didn't totally bottom out. And I think that makes for a really exciting year. Well, you also have the rare occurrence, Joe, um, of Chocolat, which is a foreign language accent film. (laughs) (laughs) And so many of them, so many accents all in one place. And that too, that is a function of Miramax having to go for like its third or fourth choice, essentially. And all of a sudden, everybody was just like, huh, Chocolat, really? Because the whole bag on Chocolat was that it's slight. What is this? It's sort of just like this, you know, cute little movie. But it was Miramax sort of triangulating that like, well... Our big stuff didn't work, so now we're going to come at it with something that we know we can do, which is sort of like pan-Euro fascination kind of a thing of just like, isn't this, you know, cute and um, crowd-pleasing? But they got like, you know, multiple nominations, multiple big nominations for it. And it's so funny, uh, Joe, you sent us this Roger Ebert sort of roundup of like, predictions, basically, or or his wishes for this Oscar ceremony. And he had this line in there about sort of like the voters fell for like Miramax's Chocolat campaign and now they have like regrets. Basically, like, don't look for any of these Chocolat nominations to win because right. I think we're all sort of like, oh, no, what happened? What did the Weinstein machine make us do here? Uh, oh, God, the thing, first so. of so many of those, like the Weinstein machine sneaking in a Best Picture nominee that you're all like, what the fuck? Why? No one's ever going to talk about this movie again. It just happens over and over again for the next like 15 years. Yeah, Miramax remorse is a real thing. I, I've, we talk about it on our podcast a lot about how after Life is Beautiful and after Roberto Benigni sort of does the whole spectacle of him winning the Oscar. And then like almost immediately, everybody was just like, oh, we did that. Like, let's- <laughs> The second that he leapt up on his chair, everyone immediately regretted falling for the Miramax machine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, speaking not, of Weinstein campaigns for movies that never went anywhere, I thought rewatching Shock a lot. I thought it was interesting. At the end, there was that title card that said, "Today we call them computers." I didn't really understand. That. <laughs> Today we call it chocolate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, should I? I will like defend the enjoyment of watching Shock a lot. I had a really good time watching it, and I remember when it came out. I read the Joanne Harris book, which is better than the movie, but. Um, but I like I I've watched rewatched Chocolat a couple times. Like there are some movies that are in conversation this year that I have never looked at again, and I've rewatched right. Chocolat a couple times, and it's like you know a fun fine time at the movies. So uh, not a Best Picture <laughs> nominee necessarily, but you know it's a, it's a nice watch. It's a good watch. A confection. It's managed to remain in the culture, I think, in part because it was such an odd 
choice for a Best Picture nominee. I I have a weird memory of a Will and Grace episode where they keep talking about wanting to see Chocolat and just sort of uh, enjoying the pronunciation of Chocolat. Like that kind I mean, of thing was just like, it was... It was sort of silly in a way that made it a little sticky. Even if you didn't necessarily see it, you knew what its whole vibe was. I think Joanne is totally right. Whereas a lot of these other movies I watched again and I was just like, did I ever see this movie before? Have I ever seen Pollock before? And I have, but I was just like, oh, this is this is what Pollock was. That's interesting. Talking about the nostalgia for this era, Chocolat just feels so much like a lot of those titles you mentioned, Joe, that didn't make the cut. Like, these are the movies that made me. Like, when I was growing up, this was a serious movie. And Chocolat is, like, light and fluffy, but you're like, it's got French accents in it. It's got Juliette Binoche. The title is French. Like, it feels like so of an era of this time of, like, what a serious movie was. And this coming a year after American Beauty being, like, really breaking the mold of Best Picture winners for that time. Like, it's kind of remarkable to look back and see it coming, like, after The English Patient and Braveheart and Titanic and so, like, that formula was shifting at the time. Like, Lord of the Rings is coming right around the corner. Um, but you see Chocolat, and you're like, I know exactly when I am. I know exactly who was supposed to take this movie seriously. And, and it yeah. worked. The apex of Lassa Hallstrom's career was the back-to-back <laughs> Best Picture nominees with the Cider House Rules and, and Chocolat. <laughs> can, I, can I give uh, some self-indulgent personal context for this? Which is that in 2000, I was in college, and... I was working in a movie theater. This is the only year of my like movie going life that I was working in a movie theater. So I have like such fondness for the movies of the year 2000. Uh, And I saw so many of them over and over and over again in a way that I didn't ever again. This year, some of my all-time favorite movies of all time, like Almost Famous and Billy Elliot and stuff like that. And um, I, I just, I, I want to thank you, Katie, for coming up with the idea for this podcast because I had <laughs> so much fun diving back into this movie. This is an incredible year, you know, despite yeah. all the flops that that Joe is talking about. Like, the, like the cream that rose to the surface here is is really, really amazing. So yeah, for for me, it was an exciting year because I had just turned seventeen, which meant I could go to R-rated movies without my parents. Nice. Mm. Uh, and so I remember like going to see traffic with a friend from high school, like in a theater in downtown Boston, which was not a common occurrence for me. And just being so bowled over and being like, this is cinema. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, it was so exciting. And you watch the movie now and it, it's still interesting, but it's a little quainter than I remember. And um, and I think a lot of these movies that felt so big are big in my heart. But like in my head, it's like, OK, I see the I see the limits here. But I think a lot of it does hold up, uh, actually, in 20 years later. But I also think that almost all of these, maybe all of them, would be TV series now, right? Ooh, Especially was, Traffic. Yeah, traffic, definitely Traffic. Traffic based on a TV series in the first yes. place, but like, yeah. yep. definitely. But it's, it's you know, like, even Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I'm like, I could see an episode based on each character given the full background of each character you know right. what I mean like it's just right. sort of I can see Aaron Brockovich like I can see all of these being Gladiator lasts for nine seasons <laughs> yeah, exactly. and becomes like <laughs> has fan theories about like the Oliver Reed character or yeah whatever. how many actors die over the course of making Gladiator <laughs> TV series right, right. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk about kind of the the characters of who we're going into this year with. And I think you have to start with, with Steven Soderbergh. Like this, what he accomplished in this year, really, I can't think of anyone who has matched it. And Steven Soderbergh has this productivity level like off the charts compared to anyone who's working. Um, so it's not like anyone can really live up to him. Um, but like, can we just take a moment to like say the fact that he had two Best Picture nominees in one year is crazy, right? Like he he did something mm-hmm. major. 
Two Best Picture nominees that, uh, you know, to our earlier point, I think stayed in the conversation. You're not even like, oh, it's right. the traffic year and the year of the other one, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. No, Aaron yeah. Brockovich and traffic are like. Aaron Brockovich has managed to age even better than traffic. Like traffic was at the time the high shelf one and Aaron Brockovich was the crowd pleaser. And I think that was the dynamic between them. But Aaron Brockovich and probably possibly because it is on television as we speak and every day (laughs) and it's just always on TV and it's the perfect TV movie because it gets better as it goes along. Like it starts off good, but like it gets great as it goes along, which makes it perfect for television. Um, Which is the thing I think we appreciate more now than at the time, because at the time I think the conventional wisdom was that Aaron Brockovich was carried to its best picture nomination on the sheer popularity of Julia Roberts performance and the absolute expectation that she would be winning. Yeah. Whereas now I think that's it's an even more appreciated movie than Traffic, and that wasn't true at the time. Yeah, I mean, the format of Aaron Brockovich just lends itself so much more to timelessness, I think. Like, Traffic was, like, bold and modern for the time, which I think has inevitably made it age differently. And also, like, we got Crash later on, and that's a whole other thing. Um, I was surprised how well Traffic <laughs> how did How dare you invoke Crash? <laughs> so I, I floated this idea to Chris and Joe before, before uh, while I was watching it last night, that, like, if Traffic had won Best Picture, which a lot of people thought it would, Crash would not have won Best Picture. Because the whole format of, like, many different stories interlinking... It exploded so much over the 2000s. If Traffic had just won in the beginning, they wouldn't have felt like they needed to give it to Crash. Proving yeah, I, I think the Soderbergh like modernity with that he brought to both Traffic and Aaron Brockovich have had interesting results in, in, in ensuing years. Like, you know, does Sandra Bullock win for The Blind Side if Julia Roberts hadn't won for uh, Aaron Brockovich? And, you know, and and you think about like, so Stephen Gagan won, a scre- won the screenplay Oscar for Traffic and then he made Syriana. So that gave George Clooney his Oscar. And then hey, you yeah. can see that thread all the way to Doolittle. You know, of course, Stephen Gagan. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just makes a ton of sense. Trying to imagine a world without Doolittle, Richard, I can't allow you to, I yeah. can't, I can't picture it. So, yeah. 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 A, a true dystopia. Yeah. If Ang Lee had won for Brookback Mountain, he might not have made Gemini man and then where would we (laughs) the thing about traffic at this oscars is it won four of the five like it only was nominated for five oscars and it won four of them the only award it didn't win is best picture and i always say that like i would die to look at the vote totals i would die to look at the vote totals (laughs) for best picture this year because it was such and it, like a, just a huge split, like with, between Gladiator and Traffic and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I would really, really like to see how close everything was that year because I bet it was very close. Something that's wild, you know, uh, Joe put the idea in my head and in sort of the email thread planning this, to, you know, to watch at least some of the ceremony. So I cheated and didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched every, you know, actor win or whatever. And, um, both Steven Soderbergh and Julia Roberts talked about how they had to go to work the next day on their next project, which is Ocean's Eleven. I oh my assume. god! And it's just it's it's wild to me that like it's this huge I've seen Soderbergh and he's like, tomorrow I have to go start work or go back to work on Ocean's Eleven, which is like a fantastic classic movie, but heralds in this other age of student. Like that's where Steven Soderbergh went after right. this insane right. night. You know what I mean? It's- and that's funny. One of the best things about watching uh, Oscar clips or even like old Oscar ceremonies, if you can find them on, on, you know, taped from television or whatever, is the little movies that are footnotes that like are only sort of popular in the moment where like Catherine Zeta-Jones on the red carpet was talking about how she was currently making America's Sweethearts with Julia Roberts. (laughs) And America's Sweethearts was one of the reasons that Billy Crystal didn't host 
this year's Oscars because he was working on that movie. And it's like that movie, which has absolutely no cultural footprint whatsoever, has these like two little footnote moments just because of. Excuse me. Hank Azaria saying the Hunkit will be in my mind for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) It's got a cultural footprint in my brain, at least. (laughs) The run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are... AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, in terms of the characters of the year, um, I feel like uh, Steven Soderbergh is ascendant. Julia Roberts, she spent like 10 years since her Pretty Woman nomination, like with many, many ups and downs. Uh, and then you just get Russell Crowe, kind of like the crowned king of this year, um, which is really amazing to me because I one of the movies I did rewatch was Castaway and watching Tom Hanks in that. Like not that Tom Hanks was going to win a third Oscar in like five years for it. But the fact that Russell Crowe just kind of like walked away with this entire Best Actor race does feel a little surprising in retrospect, even though I think he's pretty amazing. On Gladiator, a movie I enjoyed immensely rewatching. Uh, sorry to anybody who disagrees, it's great. <laughs> well, it was sort of understood to be the conciliatory win because he should have won for The Insider, right? Yeah, right. Pre- right. Previous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's the first time I was aware, you know, reading Entertainment Weekly or whatever, of that kind of decision making pattern in, in the Oscars. Yeah. And I, I remember at the time feeling it was an injustice because I, at you know, as a dumb teenager, had found the insider really boring and loved Gladiator. I was like, he won it for the right thing, you know. But I think that the conventional wisdom, even at the time, was like, this is just like a kind of apology for last year. Yeah. What's interesting? Uh, well, first of all, maybe unpopular take. I only watched Castaway for the first time earlier this year, and I found it 
mind-numbingly boring. So oh, wow. I thought it was so good. <laughs> I, I loved it. I, I do fan. love Castaway. <laughs> yeah. to, to what you probably experienced, Joanna, because I rewatched it this year as well, and I was really struck by the fact that the whole concept of this man stuck on an island by himself, and that's the whole movie, at the time was way fresher than it is now. We've had 20 years worth of Survivor seasons. We've had <laughs> right. uh, similar movies where it's just one person alone, like Gravity. Um, the Revenant. So like, yeah, where it's like the whole vibe of that movie is it, we've done it a million different times in a million different scenarios since. The um, part, yeah, the part where he's alone with the volleyball and stuff like that, like, you know, a lot of that is good, but there's an extra, like, five hours at the end where he comes back. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the book ending of that movie is is incredibly weak to the point where I'm watching it again, and I'm, like, I'm still on the island with him, and I'm, like, is this a perfect movie? And already by that point, I had forgotten that it takes a good half hour, maybe longer for him to get there. And that part isn't even good either. Yeah. And uh-huh. it's all drenched in FedEx product placement, which is just <laughs> psychotic. Wow. Uh, it's just like so much of it. It's There's so much of it. and But then you're in that part, that middle part of the movie. And I'm like, this is so perfectly acted and scripted and directed. I'm like, this is absolutely fantastic. And then, Joanna, you're right. Like, it does then get back to the real world and just doesn't end. And I'm just like, no, just, he's off the island. That's the part we care about. We don't care about dumb Helen Hunt. Like, sorry, no, Helen Hunt. I yeah. like his oh. Helen Hunt scene in the rain. <laughs> when I, it hinges on this romance with absolutely no chemistry <laughs> Thank whatsoever. You. They, they don't yeah. have great chemistry. I'll give you that. Yeah. When the BBC... A venerable institution asked me to participate in their best movies of the century so far. Castaway was on that list, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a perfect movie. It's a great it's movie. Just, Frame it's one so, to the it's, end. It is flawless cause and effect, cause and effect. Like it sets up a thing and then it brings back the thing. And then yes, you get back at this that. moment and he learns this thing and you see it. I mean, this is like the Zemeckis thing. Where He's like, gathering back tools. To the, future. the VHS tape makes a difference yeah, by the end and like all that sort of so stuff. It is so satisfying. And like, I feel like I yeah. beat the Tom Hankstrom all the time because I'm still mad he didn't get nominated for Captain Phillips. And I'm still mad he didn't get nominated no, for Captain Phillips. But I mean, <laughs> he's just so good in this movie. I don't want to disrespect Tom Hanks at all. But I, but if you're talking about larger narratives, like he had those two Oscars already in his pocket, yes, which yes. like Steve I, Martin, I recognize he was Steve Martin makes this. reference to like in his monologue or whatever. So I think this idea of like, okay, we owe Russell Crowe one for The Insider. Tom Hanks already has two on his mantle. Like yeah. we don't need to worry about him or whatever. And like, I'm glad Russell Crowe has an Oscar. Like he totally. had, you know, his run in like since then has been trickier. Uh, I thought he was great in the true history of the Kelly gang though, just to really throw in a deep cut. Um, I mean, I don't know, like if we want to talk about Gladiator, like I feel like Gladiator is a sort of silly movie that had like a lot of famous script problems where they were like writing the script while they went into production. Oliver Reed died in the middle of it, like lots going on. But Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix bring a lot to this movie that didn't have to be there. Um, And I think, I don't know, like I I think they both deserve the praise that was heaped upon them at the time. I don't, like Gladiator, like even rewatching it, I'm like I liked it even less than than originally. Yeah. I do really love the flavor that Joaquin Phoenix is bringing in that movie because it's something oh, that no. he hasn't brought in the last like ten to twenty years of his career. Like he doesn't really hit that gear again, and I like that sort of um, slithering, simpering sort of you know like weak chin kind of thing. Kind of thing. Going like, on? I like that, but I just wanted to bounce back to the Russell Crowe thing for like half a second because like watching the the ceremony again, he's it's a, such a complicated moment in his 
career in terms of as a celebrity because yeah. he's at sort of he's about to hit his peak best actor win gladiator all that he's wildly surly throughout the entire ceremony like every time <laughs> steve martin cracks a joke about him he's just I like glowering tell if from that his was a bit. i couldn't tell if it was a bit or not if it's a bit he really he committed, committed to it yeah. like he <laughs> definitely committed to it he had also just broken up meg ryan's marriage to dennis quaid which right. was like mm-hmm. a big huge thing when they're making proof of life and the other thing that i totally forgot is there was news of a kidnapping plot against him which we don't find out until 2005 was al-qaeda on like osama bin laden's orders yes wanted to (laughs) destabilize american culture by kidnapping one of its a-list entertainers he he was flanked by (laughs) undercover fbi agents at every precursor ceremony the baftas the golden globes the oscars all that year i like where is this podcast series like where is (laughs) this yes i want to know so much russell crowe and al-qaeda let's make it no no no. when you you sent that ebert thing over and i was reading it and then there was just like a tossed off mention to the kidnapping attempt of russell crowe and i audibly went what (laughs) yes But I think what you're forgetting, Joe, is that Hezbollah was a major funder of financer of chocolate. So. Man, Oscar campaigning used to get so vicious. It's true, Richard. It's absolutely I, I didn't true. even think about how this is the last pre-9-11 Oscars. Like, I don't really know oh. that that's in anything yeah. to... Because, like, wow. like, American Beauty, to me, always feels like the quintessential pre-9-11 movie. Like, these movies don't feel quite as connected to it. But, yeah, the world's about to change. Well, it's a very... it's. A, uh, from what I saw, very apolitical Oscars, like Steve Martin makes one White House joke and that's it. But I'm always interested, you know, you know, I'm always interested in who's sitting in the front row. So like Russell Crowe's right there pulling like stone faces every time Steve Martin makes a joke about him. Right next to him is Joaquin Phoenix, who's in full like disheveled boy Hollywood mm-hmm. sort of like mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the what I like to call the Jack Nicholson seat, like the center or whatever, is Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta-Jones mm-hmm. far away from the the rest of the traffic, hoi yeah. polloi, um, <laughs> right, right in the center there. And so every time there's a traffic win, Catherine Zeta-Jones, like the queen of the Oscars, like stands up in the front row middle to like <laughs> make sure she shakes the person's hand as they walk up to the stage. Um, yeah. It's pretty funny. And those two were arguably the most... Uh, visible snubs on Oscar nomination morning when like Michael Douglas was widely assumed to be a shoe in for a nomination for Wonder Boys and Catherine Zeta-Jones had gotten a Golden Globe nomination for Traffic which I think she's excellent in she's and really good in it. they were at that point like Joanne's right like they were you know A-list celebrity couple whatever but they were both sort of like kind of uh, surprisingly snubbed and to them for them to like you know be back at the Oscar ceremony we've seen before that like when Leo got snubbed for Titanic. He didn't show up at the Oscars that year either. So, like, I guess I mean, it's weird to say credit for them. Like, how brave of you to get all this attention on, you know, (laughs) Hollywood's biggest broadcast. But, like, you know, I guess good sports. So the the sporting actors thing, like I didn't rewatch Pollock. I, I think maybe some of us did, but that's such like a, re- a weird odd duck in this whole thing. And I remember Marcia Gay Harden's win being a surprise. Like I knew enough back then, but I didn't process She'd only until had like the New York Film Critics. So uh, this is prize. what a, like I did not process that she didn't get a Golden Globe or a SAG nomination, and then she won, which is crazy. It's, it's wild. So my memory, my miss memory of this year maybe because I'm an almost famous stan is I thought Kate Hudson was like the anointed winner all the way through and then was surprisingly you know didn't win but that's but this is wild so Judy Dench wins the SAG Kate Hudson wins the Golden Globe Frances McDormand wins the Critics' Choice Julie Walters wins the BAFTA and Marsha Gay Harden wins the Oscar that's 
wild. So, yeah. It's still surprising that Marsha Gay Harden's win. I I always make the joke of, like, she's not surprised enough when she gets to that stage. Like, she says, like, you know, what a thrill, like, very, like, deeply deadpan. And I'm just like, no, this is the craziest shit that's ever happened. Like, you should be, like, Cuba Gooding Jr. there, like, bouncing off the walls. And in the, in the audience, Ed Harris and Amy Madigan sort of are giving me They're that reaction. because losing like, their minds. Because the other thing about this is, like, this is this, like, decade-long passion project of Ed Harris. Nobody wanted to make it. He directed it. He wrote it. Like, he did the whole thing. It's his baby and then he spent all of Oscar season essentially shilling for it. Like he's sort of like carpetbagging around town, just like, you know, watch my movie. She even mentions yeah. in the her, in her acceptance speech, like, I'm glad people watched the the tapes, watched the screeners, because it's not a movie that really like played in theaters. And you watch it, and it's a deeply <laughs> unpleasant movie about like Jackson Pollock being a raging asshole throughout his entire life. Yeah. And she's his wife, and he's just like so mean to her, and then he cheats on her with Jennifer Connolly, and then he gets in that car accident and the movie's over. But you get the sense that it's one of those movies where people watched it and there's just like, boy, Lee Krasner put up with some shit. Let's just like give her an Oscar. <laughs> like she's good in it, but it's one of those things where you can like the, the audience's sympathy for the character really carries over into Oscar voting. But it's like, it's absolutely like, I love those little Oscar moments where it's just like this little team of people who, we're sort of like, we're all we've got. Like, the studio is maybe not, like, Sony Pictures Classics isn't, like, you know, uh, going all out for Pollock or whatever. But, like, that enthusiasm and excitement was very fun to watch. I like to think that Marsha Gay Harden won because the New York mm-hmm. branch of the Academy was giving her a seven-year delayed award for Angels in America. Yes. yes. You know, because she was, like, in this, like, revered play, and she didn't really come, She'd been in Flubber with Robin Williams. Like, she was, like, not quite out of nowhere, But I also kind of like that she came in and, you know, I love Kate Hudson in Almost Famous, but she took it from the nepotism case. You know, she was just like, no, I I get that. You know, I I get this for my like weird performance in a movie five people saw, you know, and I I think that's like a fun kind of surprise and really was the biggest one of the acting categories. Right. Because everyone else was kind of a fait accompli. I mean, I guess maybe Del Toro was sort of. I think people expected him to win, but like, it is it is hard when you watch Traffic. He's great in it, but it's hard to pick one performance out of Traffic. Oh, I I would pick him in a heartbeat. I feel like he's the like. I I mean, there's there's a million great performances in Traffic, but he has like such a full arc. The movie ends on him. Like him being a supporting actor is almost like kind of silly. Well, he won lead for SAG that year. That was. I was going to say if there was any hesitancy of him winning, it's because SAG kind of complicated it. Interesting. And you wouldn't nominate Topher Grace for uh, articulating the problems of urban (laughs) crime. I wanted. I have so many Traffic feelings, but that movie made me think about how Topher Grace has been underutilized as an asshole like he is so he's good, so good at, at being it. a shithead mm-hmm. him having him all right so the big problem in traffic is that it is uh, really bad to its black characters in Cincinnati and having to for grace being the one who's being like but think about urban poverty and like having it be kind of like a blowhard thing is a bad look um but so for grace is really good at being this shitty prep school kid we should use him better when he does the now you see thing after she free bases for the first yeah. time like that's a really interesting bit of acting on his part yeah um and he's like he's one it's like he's so clearly excited to be there like off the that 70s show kind of thing and like yeah. doing something interesting um his scene yeah. with michael douglas you can see it on his face is just like i'm acting with michael douglas <laughs> that's what like all of in good company felt like or whatever um the uh <laughs> 
I thought Erica Christensen is really, really good in this movie also. She is. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if if you guys don't like her high acting, but like. Yeah. Miguel um, Ferrer is great in it. Like, it's, oh, the cast yeah. is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Montez Sag Ensemble, right, Chris? I'm, I'm it had not to have. mistaken. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think so. I'm yes, looking at it now. Yeah. It's it. Oh, you, you just have to look at because I you know SAG has all like the weird rules of who can qualify as being part of the ensemble. It's just interesting. Like, uh, I t- oh no, Tover Grace was part of it. I'm trying to like look down and figure out who didn't make the cut because it's always uh, it's always somebody. Benjamin Bratt did though for being in one. Oh, scene. Oh, for his one scene. <laughs> Benjamin yeah. Bratt, but not Viola Davis. No How come she will be? No, Sama Hayek. She's great in like a two minute two long scene. Yeah. yeah. Salma Hayek is the queen of many things, but she's absolutely the queen of showing up in a movie you did not think she was going to be in. <laughs> like, I remember I was watching uh, earlier in the pandemic, a friend and I were watching on Netflix party, uh, Kate and Leopold, because we wanted to watch something uh, unserious and fun. Yeah. And yeah. she totally just shows up as a meter maid in Kate and Leopold. And I was like, it's Viola. <laughs> You're just so happy. Um, so speaking of like SAG, you know, who won the SAG, who won the Golden Globe? Joe or Chris, do you have any sense of 20 years ago what the kind of horse racy kind of aspects of this were? How much did the SAGs, which were relatively new at that point, like come to bear on things? Like, do you have any sense of like how the campaign season was different than it is now? SAG specifically is a little weird. Like we mentioned, uh, you have Benicio Del Toro and Lee, Judy Dench wins for Chocolat, which could have partly happened because she didn't win there for Shakespeare in Love. I don't know how it would necessarily kind of like fall in the horse race. You definitely see um, in their ensemble category two movies that were probably very close to Best Picture. Um, So like this could have complicated like how people were predicting the Best Picture race to go. They also picked Billy Elliot and Almost Famous um, over Aaron Brockovich and uh, Crouching Tiger. Um, and Which were two movies of... that I think came very close to getting Oscar nominated because those ones yeah. got like both Billy Elliot and Almost Famous got Globe, SAG, BAFTA, and Producers Guild. Like, and those are the big major precursors. And so I think the fact that neither one of them got in there, and I think Almost Famous also got DGA. Like, I think Cameron Crowe was a, was a Directors Guild nominee as well. So, I think this era of SAG to Richard's question was. It was a little bit of like the canary in a coal mine award show where like if something is going hinky in a category, the SAGs will tip you off to it, even if they don't necessarily predict it. I think that's what Judy Dench beating Kate Hudson at SAG that year does was just like everybody thinks Kate Hudson's like waltzing to this because after the Golden Globes, they did. And then Judy Dench wins that. And it's just like something's going on here. I remember when Crash won the ensemble uh, award at SAG that year. And I remember that was the first big indicator that just like, does Crash have a chance to upset in this? And I think now we look at SAG as being like very determinative and very predictive. And I think this was a little bit of like in its evolution, it's sort of this middle stage where it gives you an indication of where the actor's branch of the Academy is going, but not necessarily like... Judy Dench, Albert Finney both won uh, at SAG and they didn't obviously win Oscars. So that's fascinating to me, honestly. And like what's interesting in that in that Ebert roundup that you sent over, Joe, is that Ebert says something about like the Golden Globes cementing a narrative. And I just don't think 
I just it's it's interesting to think about like what cemented what or who was even the number of people who were even paying attention to that kind of thing versus now where we, you know, <laughs> break down in minute detail every single move <laughs> and inflection of the race. But I want to talk a little bit about like strategy and, and maybe category fraud as it as maybe as it pertains to Benicio Del Toro, but mostly as it pertains to Ellen Burstyn. I'm wondering if Ellen Burstyn had run in supporting if she would have won. Um, that that year. seems very possible because right? that, that was a performance that everybody really respected in yeah. a very like difficult wa- to watch movie. Like that was sort of the notorious thing about Requiem for a Dream was that even the people who liked it were just like, this is miserable to sit through. Like it's just like <laughs> and but everybody, you know, loved her and respected her. And I think if you did have somebody with that veteran reputation in that field that was so obviously wide open enough that Marsha Gay Harden could pull off an upset. Yeah, like that I think that's And there I mean, were critics yeah. groups that recognized Burstyn as supporting. I believe New York, she was like the runner up in supporting, if yes, I remember correctly. That's right. I yep. was surprised to see her in lead, honestly, when I was going through the list. And I was like, not that you know, like but Requiem sort of like traffic, I think you could just make the argument I Either way, uh, if you wanted to, so it's a fantastic best best actress category. One of my favorites of all time. I one that Joe and I talk about like toss a coin on a day, and we might have a different winner. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love all of the like even like Binoche carries that movie too. Like she's just so you know wonderful, and she's Juliette Binoche. But like I watch, she is really good in that movie, which is not she like is. off. It's not there's not a ton there, and she brings a lot to it. Yeah, I rewatched You Can Count On Me very late last night. I was uh, probably too Aww. late last night, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And Laura it's Linney so good. is so fantastic. And it kills me. Like, I think Julia Roberts fully deserves her win. Like, that is a movie star performance, and that is A+. But, like, it really bums me out that Laura Linney couldn't win for You Can Count On Me and that Mark Ruffalo wasn't nominated mm-hmm. anywhere. Like, he's just, like, completely absent from that narrative, even though he's... If we knew Mark Ruffalo was a thing at that moment, there's no way he misses. Like, if he's not, you know, unknown at that time. Yeah, because he hadn't been in, like, anything before, right? Nothing. We we just did an episode on 54. He shows up looking absolutely insane at the door as one of Ryan Phillippe's friends in 54. That's the only thing. <laughs> a Canadian tuxedo, my Fine. friend. <laughs> the thing about about Ruffalo not getting nominated is who do you knock out? I mean, you can't, you right. need the essential work of Jeffrey Rush and Quills, a movie everyone <laughs> talks about to this day. Like that, that, that Quills nomination stands out to me as like, oh, right. That's like the most glaring one of like. That's the Searchlight movie that year. Yeah, it's oh. Quills won National Board of Review Best Picture, which is wild. It's so crazy. Yikes. Yeah, Quills and Before Nightfalls are these weird, like, I have n- I've, I've seen Quills at some point, I've never seen Before Nightfalls, but they do feel like these, like, two little tiny oddballs in this, like, best actor category. I mean, I guess Pollock also is, but we talked about how it got in there. Um, well, it's such Barnum a weird was, combo. like, the critics' choice of that year, too. Not, didn't win critics' choice, but, like, got the critical support for that movie. And that was his first nomination to uh, presumed like whenever he would be coming over to American movies that he would be an eventual nominee um, just because he'd already had like the global stature at that point. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie in some time and he's great in it. I'm not a fan of Julian Schnabel's movies. Um, They're tough sets, man. I recall at the time that like Bardem was a really big fave of 
the other actors. Like I, I you would always mm-hmm. hear other actors talk about like what movies did you really love this year? And so many of them I remember being like loved Javier Bardem and in, in Before Night Falls. I think he's great. So like there's that there's always those like handful of people too in Oscar season where the actors really sort of like rally around them. And I think you definitely see that in the way his career sort of progressed in the next, you know, seven years from this to ultimately winning for for No Country. Yeah. It is creepy to watch the 2000 or the 2001 is, you know, ceremony where like um, you've got Jeffrey Rush is there. Kevin Spacey's there giving out a big award. You're just like the parade of like men where you're like, uh, yeah, uh, and everyone's like <laughs> hugging and kissing them. And you're like, uh, um, you know, it's uh, it's kind of uncomfortable to watch. And then Dino De Laurentiis gets the uh, honorary award and you're like, well, finally some class makes it to <laughs> the, uh, the Oscar stage. Yikes. Yeah. Que bruta. Uh. <laughs> Isn't that always the Meryl Streep story about Dino De Laurentiis? What is this thing you've brought to me? Yeah. Mm. Oh, boy. That's what he said about Meryl Streep auditioning for King Kong. <laughs> Oh, jeez. Wow. Who, who and it's funny to think there. of that at that moment. Like, Hannibal had just reached theaters uh, at that point, which was um, mm-hmm. the big Dino De Laurentiis sort of took the Silence of the Lambs back from uh, from Jonathan Demme and Jodie Foster. You yeah. wonder if Hannibal is Ridley Scott's Norbit. You do wonder, because it is <laughs> ah. not a good movie. Yeah, we were talking about Soderbergh earlier, and like my understanding is always that like Soderbergh was nominated twice for Best Director, which I, uh, certainly has not happened since. I'm not sure how often it's happened ever. Um, but he won for Traffic because I, that's the more complicated movie. Like he had accomplished mm-hmm. so much, like it was kind of easy to know which was the one to give it to him for. It was the but... harder one. It seemed like it was the harder uh, yeah. one to do. Was yeah. there ever a sense that Ridley Scott would win that instead? I mean, Soderbergh was such a big story that I doubt it. I mean, it's kind of sad because it's the actually the only year that Ridley Scott's movie um, through all of his Oscar history was nominated for picture and director. There's always a snub in one direction or the That's other. That's fascinating. And he looks, yeah. he looks um, very pissed. I mean, I don't know. I don't know uh, how to like, read he his He seems like kind face. of a cranky guy. He looks yes. really well, pissed, even Katie, when Gladiator wins at the end of the night. Hour for this we podcast, did, in a, was... very, in a padded room. I also had a really uncomfortable hour with Ridley Scott. My <laughs> well, uncomfortable, my hour, uncomfortable <laughs> hour with Ridley feels like a, uh, a memoir I want to read. <laughs> <laughs> but he looks super pissed when Gladiator wins, uh, and it's weird because, I, you know, and Russell, I was reading an interview with Russell Crowe that he gave years and years later where he's like, I always feel guilty about that award because Ridley didn't win and it was really Ridley's Oscar and I was like this is weird keep your Oscar Russell Crowe it's fine you deserve it but like um also what's what's I don't know when they started doing the thing that when the best picture uh winner happens the cast goes up I don't know when they started that but they were not doing it in 2000 so it's just the deeply awkward producers (laughs) up there and it's an awful way to end the night because you're just sort of like (laughs) Um, no, the speeches are awful right at the end. <laughs> yeah, at some point, guys. the Oscar producers realized that people wanted to watch uh, uh, movie stars up there. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing how it took them that long to figure that yeah, out. It truly is. But the narrative at the time in Best Director was Soderbergh's nominated twice, even though most of the buzz was on traffic. They still assumed that he would split his vote, which is a very logical assumption that if, you know, if you really like Steven Soderbergh, you could really go either way. Gladiator was the overwhelming favorite to win Best Picture, but still people were there was a sense of 
that's a little dumb. You know, that movie's a little dumb. Do we really need? And people loved Ang Lee and loved yeah. Crouching Tiger so much that everybody sort of assumed, and he had won the Director's Guild and he had won the Golden Globe. And so people sort of assumed that it was Ang Lee's award to lose, which is, I mean, it's so fascinating that his narrative at this point is he's won Best Director twice and he's never won Best Picture. And to think that that could easily be three Best Director wins mm-hmm. with no Best Picture mm-hmm. wins is um, wild. But I think the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon narrative is one of my favorites yeah. of this season. And I'm dying to hear everybody talk about it. I was trying to reassess like every every film that I rewatched and I was like, what would I pick for the best film of this year? And like my personal heart favorite is of course almost famous, but like, honestly, I do think Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is like the best film. If I'm going to hand out awards of the year. And it was, it's funny because, you know, it wins foreign language film. And uh, I, I think I remember this last year when with Parasite in the running, a lot of us were like, well, if it doesn't win Best Picture, don't worry, it'll win foreign language and it sort of evens out and like, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll split, you know, we'll give Parasite foreign language and it doesn't need Best Picture then or something like that. And it's like, no, man, that's a <laughs> that's it's a fine prize to win. But right. like Crouching Tiger, I think really should have I, I, I would have given it Best Picture of the Year, honestly. Yeah, Joe, what is it about the Crouching Tiger narrative uh, in in terms of how it fit into the race that you love so much? Well, I think part of it is that it was this absolute, like, film genre and style that American audiences, by and large, were not exposed to. Like, you really had to be into cinema to know anything about the, you know, the history of Asian cinema and this particular style of action cinema. And I mean, the downside of that coin is, you know, American audiences, American culture sort of revealing itself for being insular. But, what you know, it's always fascinating to me when American audiences are exposed to something new like this and they go freaking bug nuts for it. Like people really (laughs) flipped out. I remember, I don't know why I have this like little tidbit stuck in my head of like a Saturday Night Live weekend (gasps) update Finesse Mitchell, Finesse Mitchell. Where they were just like enthusing about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And they did it kind of like multiple weeks, but just sort of like mentioning it. And I was just like, oh, it really did kind of take, you know, American culture by storm. And the fact that it's totally worthy of it, like it's an absolutely beautifully made and super exciting. And like, funnier than you remember it like you watch it and that scene where uh where Zhang Ziyi uh like cleans house on that entire like whatever like tea house full of uh people is so is filmed so comedically and so much fun to watch and um and Ang Lee's so likable like this is the, the other thing it's just like um I loved that that almost happened and I think Joanne is right to mention the parasite thing because I think it shows where we've now come as far as like we're more in touch with global cinema that like Parasite was still the outsider film last year for sure like it was still coming from a different culture and whatever but I think whatever little nominal resistance there was to giving Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon best picture as a foreign language film back then it's encouraging to see that that wasn't there this past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry to shout Finesse Mitchell down the mic at you, but like, um, uh, <laughs> Joanna, you do that every week. You really need to stop. Uh, so Finesse Mitchell, for those of you who don't know, is like really briefly a, a player on SNL, and he did a weekend update bit where he played like he he was talking about like black women at the movies, whatever. Which is you know I. I, I 
cannot speak to the politics of that. But I will tell you that last night when I was watching Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I texted my a friend of mine who was like an SNL obsessive. I was like, what do you think when I say Finesse Mitchell? And he said Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's, it was like a real cultural moment. What's interesting, I I didn't know this, but I was reading up on Crouching Tiger, uh, and apparently, like it, it it you know does incorporate all this stuff that um, is historically Chinese, but if you're watching as a Chinese audience, it feels very westernized, like Ang Lee mm-hmm. sort of. United these two sensibilities. Also, when he when he sold Michelle Yeoh on being in the film, he called it uh, the martial arts versions of sense sensibility. And once I knew that, I like could not get it out of my head. I was like, oh my god, she's Eleanor Dashwood. This is wild. Um, so. Um, yeah, but I, I just I just think that that's uh, the phenomenon of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is we're we're so lucky to have it. So good. Yeah, it's the one of these movies that I really vividly remember seeing in theaters. I saw it. I was on a college tour with my dad in Oberlin, Ohio, in like April of this year. So after wow. the Oscars, but it was still playing. You know, this giant old movie theater in the middle of Ohio, and we went and saw it. Like my dad, I don't know how many Chinese language movies he's ever seen. And we just loved it. Like it's one of those movies that you can kind of sit anybody down with and be like, no, 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 no. just like. Give it 10 minutes with the subtitles. I promise you won't think about it again. And it it works so well. It's a good uh, entry point for reading subtitles at all. Can we shift gears just um, uh, to uh, Almost Famous for a second? Uh, Because I know we talked about Kate Hudson kind of winning, but Cameron Crowe did win. Mm -hmm. And he had, I believe, already wrapped on Vanilla Sky. So is it unfair of me to kind of think that winning that Oscar kind of ruined his career? Because, like, he kept Ooh. chasing that kind of grandeur in his writing and really stumbling pretty much every single time since. I, I will say this. As someone who has the world un- word uncool tattooed on them, you know, um, so <laughs> it's definitely, like, super objective. Um you know how some people have like one story in them and it's not I that was Ke- just about to say. Yeah, it's not that Cameron Crowe has one story in him. It's just because, you know, like I like Jerry Maguire, I like, you know, say anything. I like Fast Times, like all the sort of stuff that he worked on. But like but this is like this was just like the heart's blood of his story. And he did it and he did it perfectly, I think. And like it's all out there. And then it's just sort of like, where do you go from there? Like you can't even you can't even recapture that same lightning in a bottle when you try to make roadies for showtime. And I say that with all love and respect to Cameron Crowe, but I just don't know where you go. No respect after. to roadies though. <laughs> I don't know where you go after like you you've you've done your own life story so brilliantly. I don't know. What what would you say about that, Joe? Well, I was going to say, I I definitely take Richard's point that, like, Cameron Crowe's career after Almost Famous is a fascinating uh, sort of downward uh, trajectory there. But I think also, I almost take the the back end of that, which is, thank God the Oscars gave him an Oscar, like, gave him an award then. Because uh-huh. it was so rare that people never going to happen exactly again after right that. Moment. So, like... So so sometimes we see the Oscars miss their moment with with certain actors, writers, directors, whatever. And I'm thankful that he did get that, even though, again, like Almost Famous and, and You Can Count On Me are probably my one, two that year. So it's like it's a bummer to me that Lonergan doesn't win for that screenplay award, mm. which he sort of swept the Critics Awards for that one. Um, but Lonergan would make, you know, good movies again. And and this and was he the won, moment. Did he win for Manchester? Yes. I think he did. Yes. Okay, so Kenneth sure. Lonergan Again, has his Oscar. Recent history is a muddle in my brain. And <laughs> Twenty years old history is pristine as you as you please. Um, but like this was the moment to to give Cameron Crowe an Oscar, and I'm very very glad. I I like Joanna. Am 
utterly gaga for almost famous like it yeah. just it it lives in my it lives in my soul it was so the second i saw it i was like oh this is my favorite movie i've ever seen and yeah. it's yeah. um it's really up there and i love was there the, ever i do a, love the new one for it was there ever a strong push for philip seymour hoffman in almost famous not strong enough which is weird like right yeah so good it was really just came down to those two uh actresses nominated and supporting actress all season which to me almost famous like beyond even the cameron crowe narrative of it i think in the 2000 narrative almost famous has one of the more fascinating campaigns to me like it was an early arrival it had like that kind of anointed expected like oscar buzz attached to it and then when it was not a financial success very much not fell out of the season for a while and it kind of hung on cameron crowe's screenplay and the two actresses um, to the point where it's like it was he was a strong contender to win the screenplay Oscar but like he even won he lost the Writers Guild for it as well and it felt like kind of an afterthought to like I remember that during the ceremony when he won it felt like kind of sweet because Almost Famous was actually down and out for a while because of its box office performance. And like speaking to dominoes like I, I don't know that Cameron Crowe wins for that uh, if it weren't for Jerry Maguire, right? Like yeah, it's just totally, sort yeah. of like a, a f- overflow of the Jerry Maguire goodwill or whatever. But um, speaking, yeah, almost famous. Same with Joe, my favorite movie. And I, like I said, I was working in a movie theater at the time. I would sneak. I've watched the closing credits, waiting to clean a movie theater of almost famous, <laughs> hundreds of times. That's like me with uh, Menopause the Musical when I worked at that theater. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the almost famous thing is uh, the. Fact Financial thing is so interesting because for me and my friends, like that movie was it. That was like the fall movie. We were so, yeah. I mean, I love that movie and we were so excited. And it's weird, like 20 years later, be like, oh, it kind of bombed. And to think that they spent the equivalent, uh, today's equivalent, $90 million. I mean, it was $60 million then to make a movie about a journalist and a rock, like, and a musician. Like, like yeah. that's crazy. Well, it's also it interesting that because. It was originally going to be DreamWorks' big Oscar play, and it ended. DreamWorks still won, but they won for Gladiator, which like won off of like being a big summer movie. Wow! Yeah, and the other thing was like it's this financial failure that was set to star Brad Pitt, and just didn't it didn't happen, and it seemed like it didn't happen for at least in part creative reasons that like like Cameron Crowe wanted something else and it's interesting that like almost famous could have been this sort of like starry buzzy kind of a thing and like definitely probably would have made more money if it was um brad pitt the casting story of that movie is very fascinating because it was originally brad pitt and then sarah polly and yeah. the kate hudson role which i can't picture it in my head and like, kate yeah. hudson was supposed to be in the zoe deschanel role yep it's so mm-hmm. yeah because brad pitt is so much older than patrick fugit so it's just like <laughs> <a totally laughs> i was gonna say i can't see him in the francis mcdormand role at all <laughs> but, you know. he is an actor he really he can do it no it's uh there there's a really good i don't know if you guys uh listen to the podcast series about almost famous um Origins, the the Origins podcast, where they interviewed everyone for the big anniversary that they had last year, and I would just want to shout out Kate Hudson, who was like so loyal to this project that she turned down like so many other big things that she was offered because she's like, no, I still want to do Almost Famous. No, I still want to do Almost Famous. And this was still when she was just like in the sister role, and then she right. gets like bumped up to Penny Lane, and she's just like turning down things left and right, and and staying on the line for Cameron Crowe. And um, anyway, and then she still didn't get her Oscar. 
Oscar. So I, she's another one sort of similar. Like, I think Kate Hudson never again reaches the uh, Oscar stage after this. There's uh, her career has been really interesting. Like, that's a whole other podcast about like I which I would absolutely do uh, tracking Kate Hudson's. Oh, my uh, God. We did a Kate Hudson movie marathon and like would. Week- in month eight do. of this year's Oscar race and we run out of things to talk about. Right. But like this was her moment and and Oscar missed it. And I do feel like for as much as like Marsha Gay Harden's a great actress, Frances McDormand is a great actress, probably gives the best performance in Almost Famous. But like Kate Hudson, there's a star power thing. Like I'm very much a believer in things like, you know, like movie star performances. And she just, corny as it is to say, like lights up that screen every time she's on. And she's so essential to that movie succeeding on its own terms because that movie, there's a lot of magic to that movie. There's a lot of um, nostalgic sort of luminous stuff about the way it feels about her character. And if she doesn't live up to that, that movie deflates like a balloon. And she, I think what, like that's the perfect thing for Oscar to uh, award anyway and it still does kind of bum me out A that she didn't win and B that she decided to show up to that ceremony in Gloria Stewart cosplay which I still don't quite (laughs) Ooh I don't remember what she wore I'm looking this up right now It's a capelet It's a capelet It's a capelet and then her hair is sort of up in this weird sort of Oh boy (laughs) I mean we've made it through this whole She really is dressed like Gloria Stewart at the Titanic Oscars That's crazy Yeah Yeah, We come to if we're talking about red carpet for this Oscars where we come to to the most important uh, talking point, yes. which is Bjork's swan dress. Oh. The finest thing ever worn on a I honestly Oscars forgot this was the Bjork swan dress I did Oscars. too. And that swan dress had won, I think, the Chicago Film Critics uh, Circle. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> right. So she was going into that night kind of ready, Richard. you know. Um, I mean, I I thought you were going to say Julia Roberts, which like, you know, not that her dress is fantastic or whatever, but, you know, it's just, it's an iconic moment for Julia Roberts and an mm-hmm. iconic silhouette for Julia, like her hair is enormous, but sleek and like, you know, the dress is on point. Her, her speech is wild and long. And um, as and I was perfect. saying, bef- uh, yeah, perfect. and as I was saying before we started recording, she was dating Benjamin Bratt, uh, a star of traffic and, and like smooched him when she won and thanked him and that's just like a fun little like celebrity couple lightning in a bottle thing but like yeah how, I wonder, how much longer do they last after this I have, I have no idea I don't know when Danny comes into the picture but like not, not long after she's got teenage kids now so yeah, yeah. isn't Danny Motor the DP on the Mexican Ooh. am I wrong which is a 2001 release yeah yeah, yeah. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Um, I mean, oh, speaking ben. of people winning the right Oscar at the right time, do we feel that way about Julia Roberts? Like, is this like she didn't yeah, win absolutely. for Pretty Woman? Her, her 90s are all over the place. Um, you know, she is obviously like a huge presence more than than Cameron Crowe is now. But like, what a what a great win for exactly the thing you were talking about, Joe, like star performances. Yeah, no, it's it's I think it was the right time. But I, I also think that she could have and maybe should have won for Sleeping with the Enemy many years prior. Um, I think that's to date maybe her best performance. Um, but given where she was in her career, you know, four-ish years after, right? Or three after um, 
uh, my best friend's wedding. Like she was right. kind of ascendant again. It was and and un, quite unlike The Blind Side, which I compared it to, uh, you know, earlier. Uh, it's actually a good movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yes. and so all of those kind of coalesced and she knew it. And she goes up on that stage in that, I think, great dress with the little peekaboo screen. Oh, love that um, dress. And just, you know talks for what I think you Chris said five minutes you know yeah. it's it's like a crazy acceptance speech that I probably watch every couple of months and have for many years <laughs> she like strikes a pose some for like half of the people and you can tell when she has true genuine affection for people because she like half cocks her hip it's she does she, there's a moment in there where she literally has her fist sort of on her hip in like a whatever like teacup pose with the Oscar in that hand like it's, for it's just Danny like she's already She's already so comfortable, like holding that award. It's 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 the it's most an appendage. It's mm-hmm. the most self indulgent Oscar speech ever. But I, it's yes. also one of my favorites. Correct. It is only Julia Roberts can deliver it in in a way where, like, I think of, I was thinking about as I was rewatching it this time, and the way that her career was just like the media narrative of her career was such a roller coaster anyway, where it was just like America's sweetheart, pretty woman, top of the mountain, and then like all that interest in her her wedding to Kiefer Sutherland, she left him at the altar, all that Lyle like Lovett. all the incredulity <laughs> about the Lyle Lovett marriage, and then her career was dead. Right, it was like Mary Riley era. Her career was absolutely dead. Everybody was just like, "What happened to Julia?" Roberts, it's over. I'm sorry, and Joe. How she, do you pronounce Mary Riley? What's the Mary Riley. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then she had to, like Richard said, like my best friend's wedding was like a comeback for her. Like people, she really had to like go back to her bread and butter of romantic comedy, and she did that so well with that movie. And then like, so like to anybody who is just gonna knock that speech for being self indulgent, I'm just like, she knows what roller coaster ride she's on, and she knows. That, like, she gets this spotlight because she also got all of that, like, increased scrutiny and whatever. And so she knew she was never going to probably be there again or that, like, this was her moment. And she knew that they weren't going to, like, even, you know, all that, like, you know, admonishing stick man or whatever. And in her heart of hearts, she knew they're not going to play me off of this stage. Oh, like, she absolutely I'm, knows. I'm here with my, is it, it's a Valentino dress, right? I do, yeah. generally don't know vintage Valentino, dress names, but yeah. I remember that, that it was vintage Valentino. And, and all of that you just described, Joe, she was 33 years old. I know, I know. Wow. What will it be like when we're 33, Richard? That's like when Catherine Zeta-Jones in traffic says like, here I am, a 30-year-old. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I looked it up and Catherine Zeta-Jones was 30. And I was like, what? Oh, Oh, yikes. Um, No, uh, I was trying to game. Okay, so two things, three things really quickly. One in my notes I wrote, Danny DeVito, big part of Aaron Brockovich narrative, question mark. I was just like, they cut to him so so many times. Number two, I I when I was watching the speeches, I started like the first thing that you I just typed in like 2000 Academy Award speeches or whatever. And, and YouTube first served me Russell Crowe. So I started there. I was watching and I was like, oh, I, and I wrote down, I guess Oscar speeches didn't have to be interesting back then. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got to Julia Roberts and I was like, never mind. But I was never also as, as I was watching and I was like gaming out who would get fired and who would get yelled out if anyone tried to get Julia Roberts off that stage. Oh, my I God. was like, I was like. 
like the I I think that they would like sue the conductor. I think so. You know, <laughs> the stagehand would never work in Hollywood again. Like I think yeah. that's that was her power in that moment. You know. Yeah. One of my favorite tidbits about that speech is that she thanks um, her sister-in-law, Kelly, and her niece, Emma, Emma Roberts, uh, mm. the actress. She doesn't thank her brother, Eric Roberts. So I like, I know, like you can get that little window into family strife, which is delicious to me. So, oh, yeah. yeah. And speaking of causality, if we don't have Julia Roberts' speech, do we get Melissa Leo's speech? You know, which <laughs> went on for, I think, 35 minutes. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa Leo, another actress who knew she had her moment and she was taking Remember it. Remember Melissa Leo's FYC you know? campaign? Yeah. Like, oh, oh yeah. Oh. Yes. <laughs> every day. Every, every day, day of my life. I recreate it every day in my home. <laughs> <laughs> like all of Brad Pitt's great uh, acceptance speeches this past year, I feel like his Oscar speech was like not as fun. But like he was just like up there throwing zingers like you knew he was prepared. It like wasn't the same kind of like burst of energy of Julia Roberts. But like when you see someone who is a superstar get their chance up on stage, like knowing they have the opportunity for it. It's such a it's such a nice thing to see. That's the thing. It's like it's this long speech and you can tell she'd been like working it over in her head forever, but she still has that moment where it's that like psychotic laugh she lets out that's so <laughs> delightful and so wonderful. But it's just like even with that like speech like it was there's this irrepressible joy coming out of her that it's just like I can't believe this happened. And well, yeah. and, like it's she wonderful. does spend like she's not pontificating the whole time. Like she does genuinely try to remember a lot of these people at yeah. one point she's like I can't believe I remember all of these people's names. Yeah. So it's, it I think it's sweet. I mean, that's the other sort of time capsule aspect of watching the 2000 Oscars is this idea of star power, which, you know, we, we've we've talked ad nauseum over the years about, like, what's happened to the A-list star in Hollywood? Do they even exist anymore? Et cetera, et cetera. When you have Steve Martin up there, like, in his monologue giving a joke, he's like, well, I was having dinner last night with, like, Tom, Julia, Mel, and Gwyneth. And you're just like, this, like, first name basis sort of star power thing is is not something you see a lot in, like, the newer generations. Chris, Chris, Chris Hollywood. Chris. Right, all the Chris's. <laughs> right. Or like um or even like something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I feel like made like Zhang Ziyi and Michelle Yeoh and Xiao Yun Fat and all these people like household names in a way that, you know, wouldn't happen now. Yeah. Just because we like big films that are not like superhero films or whatever don't turn people into stars anymore I think um, I thought about you know. it with Russell Crowe too like Gladiator is a huge big studio movie with as you said a lot of problems but like that is a star performance that movie hinges on performance and him like picking up the dirt mm-hmm. before he steps into the arena and like glaring through the helmet at Joaquin Phoenix like it it, it is so much of a person in the middle of that, which is what makes, yeah. it su- makes it succeed. Movies aren't structured that way anymore. Although, like, The Martian that Ridley Scott made in 2015 is. So maybe he's just the one who does it. But if you look at, like, exactly what you're talking about, Katie, with Russell Crowe's, like, that kind of particular kind of male actor, leading man magnetism, it's it. I think I think the swing from American Beauty to that makes a lot of sense because maybe there was within the you know the academy which is you know back then was more homogenous but like still there was probably some people who wanted more of the you know cutting edge stuff and people who other people who wanted to you know re- retreat to the classical hollywood stuff and so that's yeah. kind of what they did um so that pendulum swing i think in context it's like yeah of course it went that way yeah 
We've talked about this a lot on our podcast, too, and it's interesting that this year is coming off of the period in the 90s where the Oscars really did embrace a lot of smaller movies. Joe, we specifically talk about it a lot in 1996, that happening where it's like all of the Oscar movies are um, rewarding small independence. So like you do see this pendulum swing kind of coming into focus in 2000, where it's like... Yeah. The small movie is Chocola and Traffic, which don't really feel... Or Billy Elliot. (laughs) Billy Elliot, yeah, yeah. Uh, I watched that one again to prepare for this, and I had seen it before. Billy Elliot? Yeah, but I was, like, really young when I saw it. Like, I saw it, like, probably, like, that year. And it's... I'm really surprised that didn't actually get a Best Picture nomination because it's so incredibly likable. It's just, like, it's, it's... Just... I mean, the the Julie Walters nomination makes complete sense. Like, she's so... You just love her in that movie, but like Jamie Bell. Joe, have you ever, have you, how often or if ever have you watched Jamie Bell's BAFTA acceptance speech that year? Oh, never. I got to go watch that right after. Please inject that sunshine into your veins. It's the sweetest thing I've ever seen. Billy Elliot is is one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, like uh, my friend just texted me the other day because she was like, Remember when we went to go see Rocket Man and then we went home and we watched Billy Elliot? I was like, It was a perfect day. What a great double feature. Day. I love love that movie. So, I'm so glad we worked yeah. Rocket Man into this episode too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Check it I wanted to throw out a quick like thought experiment. This is the thing that Chris and I do on our podcast every once in a while is if there was a top 10 best picture this year in 2000, what other ones do we think would have made it? Because I obviously like Almost Famous Billy Elliot seemed like the two like no brainer slam dunks. Daldry yeah. gets the best director nomination. Whatever. But I like I'm in, I'm curious what we all think might have been the other ones to sneak in there. Like, do I mean, if, if we want to fill like the indie slot, like you can count on me probably, right? Like the idea I, of like the yeah. small, yeah, and I think because like, it's such a movie. strong acting and and uh, and screenplay contender, yeah. What about yeah. Pollock with its like, you know, two he was working super hard for it. Yeah, that's like the winter's bone of that year. Yeah, Requiem for a Dream, I think, what m- might have gotten in there. Absolutely. Uh, I also think it's wild that Oh Brother Where Art Thou was so muted in this Oscar conversation yeah. when that was like that was a top film of that year for me. And so, like that you know. soundtrack like was like the biggest album of the year. I think it won the Grammy. Like it it's was a nuts. pop it's, culture yeah. phenomenon. It's nuts to me that they didn't I was like, why did Oh Brother not do an original song? They all would have easily won if they yeah. had if they had ha- like had an original song for that. Because the co's are just like, ah fuck it. I don't care. <laughs> the <laughs> wild that original yeah. song. The wild one I would probably float as maybe like a ninth or 10 place um, best picture nominee. Um, uh, go with me, guys. Would probably be Quills, to be honest. Um, oh. Just like the certain level of costume drama about it, but it's also a Fox Searchlight movie. They have always been incredibly savvy with uh, their campaigns all the way back to uh, the full Monty. Um, but also like uh, that National Board of Review win, like it's for like Oscar obsessives, it's lingered as this stat that's like the anomaly. But I do wonder if it could have been like the 10th or 9th place because I feel like sixth and seventh probably being the obvious Billy Elliot almost famous one. I feel like this would have something more chance than like a Pollock, um, mm. which is or a Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys, I actually think probably would be a nominee even though it didn't get that um michael douglas nomination just because it stuck around and showed up in places like uh golden globe i do love that chris you rewatch wonder boys right 
I did. I hated it. <laughs> you hated it. <laughs> I, I rewatched it. it. I, I loved, loved it at movie. the time. Why? Why would I dislike it now, Chris? Well, I just don't think it's aged very well. Um, and it's just it, it. It could just be that it didn't sit poorly with me. Like uh, the opening stretches of the movie have a lot of uh, transphobic jokes in it. Um, yeah. But also, it's just it didn't hit me on that like kind of sweet but smart level that it did at the time or that like lingered in my brain it, of everything I rewatched it's the one that surprised me that my mind had changed interesting that's interesting. but I do think that things have changed Chris things Bob have... Dylan sings about it wow <laughs> I can't believe by the way the stones on Bob Dylan to be like I'll appear at the Oscars live via satellite from Australia for my performance <laughs> I'm just like Russell Crowe only... made it why couldn't you make it Bob right, right. I, I... Susanna Hoffs is there singing next to Randy Newman like <laughs> she's not too they good for this they did a whole like staged routine for the Crouching Tiger song they sure did. Choreographed um, by, I will say, Debbie Allen, because I will, I will bring up Oscar Debbie hero, Allen. Debbie yeah. Allen. Yeah. Um, it's funny to me that Wonder Boy's Bob Dylan song, uh, Things Have Changed, is a song about, I don't really care about this. And <laughs> based on his performance and his expression when he won, he still didn't care about this. Although I think he had the Oscar like on stage with him when he toured for like years after that. So Oh, no. wow, that's he funny. He wanted, he wanted to show it off. <laughs> if, if I were to swap uh, two awards, I already mentioned that I would give Best Picture to Crush and Tiger, but I would give Best Score to Gladiator. I would swap those two. Uh, Gladiator, you it's can have score. It's such an influential <laughs> score. I was yeah, watching Gladiator yeah. again. I was like, oh, wow, every score for the next 20 years sounds like this. Talk the about. Thomas Newman score on Aaron Bach, which is pretty funny, too, because I was it's like, this great. is such a Thomas Newman score. Um, also, yeah. go back and listen to the Pollock score. Like, again, like this movie that doesn't have too much <laughs> no, of a thank footprint. You. But like, a, it, it doesn't sound okay. It doesn't sound like what you would think it would sound like when I say the Pollock score. It's so sort of like bright and like uh, upbeat, and it sounds like I was talking to somebody about it this morning. Um, it sounds like an early Pixar score. It's very oh, strange, funny. and it's, and, it's the, and you will absolutely recognize it from other things, whether it's movie trailers or whatever. Mm. Like, it's a piece of music that that shows up in other things it blew my mind that's how I felt about the Rachel Portman score for Chocolat I was like oh this is like in the air mm, it's just everywhere yeah. it's really good um, speaking of Chocolat and Pirates of the Caribbean it is the Johnny Depp of Chocolat <laughs> is really interesting the original like, pirate of yeah, Johnny Depp that's, that's <laughs> Captain Jack Sparrow is right there first of all and secondly like I was watching and I was like man this used to really work on me like know. you know it doesn't work it's, anymore but it used really to really work it's really weird to like because he's like he's good in it like he's not yeah. doing a lot but he's like charming his Irish accent is fine I'm not an expert actor an accent expert. Um, but he's just like, oh, he, he played people for a while there. Like, he wasn't always just, like, a cartoon character. Yeah. Um, it's funny to remember. Wild thing about Chocolat is Lena Olin got a BAFTA nomination for that movie. She's good. <laughs> she absolutely did. She is good. She's, I mean, I love her. I think she's always good. But it's it's funny. And not Carrie Ann Moss? That's weird. <laughs> it's always funny to me to look at, like, those outliers in terms of acting nominees where they always show up in, like, the runners-up to the Court Critics Awards where, like, this was the year where there was buzz around Fred Willard maybe for Best in Show. Oh, he's so oh. good at Best happened. in Show. What happened? Or, like, Gillian Anderson in The House of Mirth, which I feel like was this big revelation where it's, like, it's the X-Files actress and she's doing a costume drama and it's such a good movie. Uh, I have to run, but um, can I add one last thing? 
Yes. Which is that if Columbia Pictures, their big Oscar play that year, a Gus Van Sant film called Finding Forrester had been nominated, <laughs> would we have gotten Sean Connery on the broadcast saying, you're the man now, Oscar? <laughs> it would be the Just only thing it. better than yeah. than the Julia Roberts. Speech. They would have had him presenting with an actual dog. I gotta let this episode end, and we'll have some final thoughts too. But as we're talking about moments on broadcast, I promise we talk about it. We have to talk about Elizabeth Taylor presenting the Golden Globe yes. Gladiator, which we is do. the single most formative event of my life. I th- honestly, I think so, because like I like we didn't have memes back then. Like we didn't know like how to process these things. But like I just remember God, if watching Twitter it existed back Holy then. Holy shit! Like I mean, I don't think she would have been able to do it. Like they wouldn't have let her go. Like I mean, if, if for anyone who has not watched this, it's on YouTube. You have to watch it. She is drunk. She like is. I mean, maybe she's on other drugs too. But she's very altered. She's you know, baddie Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, maybe yeah. like five or six years before she dies. She's loopy. She's loopy. And she stands up there. She opens the envelope as she's supposed to read out the nominees and like talks to the audience about what she's doing wrong. And then Dick Clark comes out to rescue her. Uh, speaking of, like, legends, now lost. Um, Dick it's... Clark, producer of the Golden Globes telecast, historically. And then yes. who would like to do their impression of her announcing that Gladiator had won uh, I, the Golden Globe? I, well, okay, can I do my impression of Molly Shannon doing her impression of <laughs> 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 Which just goes, Gladiator! That's, that's, what I, that's in my memory, it's just Molly Shannon's version of it. My favorite thing about that moment, and this happens every once in a while when you'll watch a an awards presentation going awry that the audience knows is going awry. So like, not like a moonlight La La Land thing, but like any time where a presenter seems like they're about to read the winner before they read the nominees and like the palpable (laughs) sense of panic that runs through the room where like, everybody's just like, Oh God, don't do it. And you can tell like people are like yelling from the floor. That is just like, read the nominees first. And she goes, what? And it's like, (laughs) and like, and then to come out and rescue her. Right. And it's just like, and it's, it's like somebody is loose with the nuclear launch codes on the stage and everybody's in a bit. Like, it's that level of panic of just like, what are we going to do if she leads the winner before the nominees? Right, exactly. But if she did that, we would never have heard about the uh, It's Fun Sabo film Sunshine being nominated for Golden Globe because that was its only moment of uh, of award season glory was being a nominee for Best Picture that year at the Globes. Oh, award shows just aren't what they used to be, right? Like, Russell Crowe's speech might have been boring, but uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Um, But it's also, this was such a formative period in our lives. Like, we remember it so fondly because it's great, but also because... It was. It hit that real sweet spot for us. Uh, yeah, age-wise. and like, like I, saw, I, I had seen National Velvet, I'm sure, but I'm sure I saw this before I ever saw like Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf. Like that was like right. an early exposure to, to Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> Fair right. or unfair? That's who she's. For whatever oh, no. reason, I was very conscious throughout growing up of all of the jokes about Elizabeth Taylor's many husbands. I yes. feel like that was. We all knew about that. A big. That was basically what I knew about Elizabeth Taylor. Well, was and that the she White had, Diamonds like a billion husbands and the White Diamonds ad. Absolutely yeah. true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> These have always always brought me luck. Ah! (laughs) Did you just like Orson Welles, uh, the the White Diamonds head? (laughs) That's got it right on time. I'm really sorry for anyone listening to this who like wasn't born in the 80s. Who's just me? Like I don't understand what any of this is. Um, all right, as I said, we should we should wrap this up. I mean, do like having done this dive backwards, and like obviously we now have to do this every year because this was so fun. Like we've talked a lot about like comparisons to now. Is there anything that we like learned about what the Oscars were then or what they are now from doing this look back or like things that we wish we could return to from this era? 
Well, like for me really quickly, I will just say that it's fascinating to look because I I found the race kind of impenetrable in terms of like I couldn't figure out what all the machinations were because there wasn't a record of it. So basically, like, I really wish Little Gold Men existed in 2000 so I could hear about all the backroom (laughs) deals that, like, wound up getting Gladiator to win the Oscar or something like that. Because, like, apparently, like, I didn't know this about Gladiator's narrative, but, like, apparently a bunch of people think that Gladiator winning is, like, one of the most shameful decisions that the Oscars have ever made and how dare it win over Traffic or Crouching Tiger and and that, like, it is tainted. So much so that Scott Tobias had to write like a defensive in honor of the anniversary of Gladiator article for The Guardian that I read this morning. Like I was just like, I didn't I didn't know that it was considered like uh, a shysty win or whatever. And um, and if so, I would really like the story behind how it got there. So I mean, my thing like I don't think Gladiator is a very good movie either. But like the very next year, A Beautiful Mind won, which is so (laughs) much worse. It's so much worse of a movie. So like I, I I always I mean, you take Oscar wins with a grain of salt, at least I do, where it's just like you're going to get good ones and bad ones. If the Oscars agreed with me all the time, it'd be boring. I wouldn't, you know, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't feel the same way about it. And the thing that I was sort of struck by watching uh, as uh, I tried to watch as much of it as I could this morning before we got on and I woke up too late and it didn't happen. But um, I read there was an EW sort of wrap up of it, a Ken Tucker wrap up of it after. And there was just all the usual like whining and moaning about how it's long. Like this one was in terms of um, runtime, it was one of the more on-time Oscar ceremonies. It didn't, you know, that's why the stick man was so so aggressive. <laughs> but there was still a lot of just like, oh, it's you know, it's dull, it's whatever. All these awards that nobody cares about, and and all of this, you know, there were. And again, this is a ceremony with three honorary Oscar presentations. You don't get those anymore. Like, we don't get uh, honorary Oscars. Those have been put to a separate ceremony. And it's fascinating to me where it's just like, it's been 20 years, and they're just not going to satisfy everybody. They never are. We're getting the same kinds of, like, complaints and whatever, and what can be done to fix the Oscar ceremony, and yada, yada, yada. And it's just like, it's going to be, like, complaints about the Oscar ceremony are always just going to be with us. And it's going to take one form or another. And I think if you look at that, like, this EW write-up about that is, like, a mixed to negative uh, review of it. And now we look at it 20 years later... We don't remember, you know, whatever the occasional lulls in uh, momentum. We remember Julia Roberts and we remember, you know, Gladiator and we remember the Crouching Tiger wins and this kind of thing. And it's a document like it sounds really cheesy to say, but it's like it's a cultural document and it exists to sort of put in a landmark in where we were at the moment. And that's why I will always ride for the Oscars for that reason. One thing I did also want to say as a tidbit, and this doesn't have anything to do with legacy, this Oscar ceremony featured the world premiere of the Britney Spears Pepsi ad where Mm -hmm. Bob Dole shows up at the end with his dog and makes the weird like quasi boner joke. And I thought that was sort of fascinating too, that like you would think that kind of an ad would have been a Super Bowl ad or whatever. And it's, it was, you know, it was the Oscars. Yeah, Bob Dole a- still alive. I, I, I think <laughs> about this every day. <laughs> Bob yeah. Dole still alive. He's ninety-seven years old. Yeah. Uh, you know, talking about. Um, What's changed is, uh, well, first of all, okay, in that Julie Roberts speech, she says something like, I already have a TV. So I assume that there was a bit sort of like the jet ski thing um, with with Kimmel or whatever, where it's like, if you go short, you get a TV. 
Uh, I think they that... would. They think they said that at the gov- the, uh, the the brunch, whatever oh. the um, the nominees <laughs> luncheon. Okay. Because they always admonish the the all the nominees yeah. to keep your speeches short and whatever. And I think that was a thing where they were just like shortest speech gets a television. Or something. Yeah. And yeah. so Julia Roberts was like, I have a TV, so I'm going long. And I was like, okay. Um, but also <laughs> Steve Martin and his Steve Martin his opening monologue was talking about how many people were watching the ceremony, um, and he says some. I think he said 80 million. I looked it up, and it, uh, according to this. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it was 72 million. And if you compare that to the 23 million who watched this year, wow. like that's that's no that's wow. no like news breaking news. Like we know that ratings have been falling, but it's just sort of like the the primacy of the Oscars, the the like pageantry, the star worship, all that sort of stuff has really eroded in Hollywood, which is I think why we always argue like for the Oscars to not worry about getting viewers and just be your weird oscar's self because it's that era is over right uh so like let's just make the oscars what they should be which is is a weird insular sort of circle jerk moment for hollywood you know and even with all of those falling ratings it's still the highest rated non-sports program of the year like you Mm -hmm. know what i mean it's just like it's you know TVs, you know, down everywhere. And absolutely, no, and yeah. I, I don't mean that to be like Oscars are relevant. We host, we both host Oscar podcasts. But <laughs> right, like, yeah, I think you guys are. I think you guys are safe. Yeah. Well, guys, I really enjoyed living in the year two thousand for a little. Oh while my god, can we go back? This. I want to go back. <laughs> I know. Can well. we go back and make our case for Tom Hanks over Russell Crowe? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Chris, did you have like one moment from the ceremony that was like your absolute favorite? I mean, besides Julia Roberts winning the surprise of Marsha Gay Harden, um, who was the least surprised to be winning, apparently, um, <laughs> with her flat, what a thrill. Um, I, okay, so I usually am a nerd about best original song, and like all of these performances this year, all of the songs were performed. There is no greater spectacle than Bjork singing in her swan dress. Um, I I vividly remember the Crouching Tiger song performance, which I don't think I ever even noticed in the movie before. But like lyrics I, by James Seamus, which is nuts. Yep. <laughs> he didn't an know original that. Original song nominee on top of the rest <laughs> of his nominations. Um, I I guess just kind of the spectacle of that is what I always want to see on the Oscars, and there seems to be kind of a reticence to have this kind of huge, broad spectacle just for the hell of it anymore. Um, so that's definitely a treasured memory from this ceremony. What about you, Katie? I didn't get to rewatch it. So I have like the, the fuzziest of memories, like everybody else. Like I had to be reminded that Bjork's swan dress was part of it. (laughs) Um, but I certainly want to rewatch. I wonder how bonkers Benicio Del Toro's speech must've been, or was he, he was not, he was very low key and brief. Super, super. He had to really, Oh, but I did want to point him out as someone who I feel like won the right Oscar at the right time. Like he has done Mm -hmm. interesting work. He's done terrible work. Like he's had ups and downs over the last 20 years, like everybody, but like, this is a great performance. He is a valuable movie star. This was the, the, the time to give it to him. So I'm really grateful for that. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite actually might be Steven Soderbergh, who's like, I'm going to take everyone privately. <laughs> Soderbergh's speech is actually one that like for years, the, the talking about like the, the producers telling the, the nominees what kind of speeches to give for years. They held up the Soderbergh speech for best yeah. director as like the ideal. Like this, they is literally what to do. like played it at the nominees luncheon. Maybe Soderbergh just wanted that TV. <laughs> and he has said afterwards that like, oh, I was just like I was drunk. I didn't know what to say. Like whatever. But it's this incredible sort of really heartfelt. Um, 
statement in support of art art and artists and yeah. and I think what the producers love about it I think they hate the laundry list of thank yous like they thank feel like the audience and your agent. like doesn't yeah. care yeah. about you know whatever um but it's a really lovely speech it's one of one of my favorites also Steven Soderbergh we were talking about you know going right onto Ocean's 11 but he is on a five film run out of sight the limey Aaron Brockovich traffic Ocean's 11 in like four years it's yeah. bananas um three Tens years across actually the board. yeah um yeah i mean steven soderbergh thank god he's unretired again um but god god bless that man agreed uh well joe and chris uh thank you for being at the first of uh, many annual revisits of oscar seasons because we will <laughs> obviously do this again um you should Love plug it. this head oscar buzz for more uh, escapist listening for people yeah, yeah, Chris, take it away. Uh, we, uh, we, every week we co-host this at Oscar Buzz. We're a podcast where we talk about previous Oscar contenders that ended up having no nominations, whether it was they were predicted early on in the race or they were actively campaigned. Uh, you can find us wherever you find podcasts now, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Um, it's this at Oscar Buzz. We also are on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Um, Joe, people remember having you on to um, predict the year ahead Oscar nominations. Um, this year's. I don't want to go back and listen to that now. I, I feel either. like I will just cry. Guys, just listening air it to... again next year. Just re up the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? We might have picked something that uh, maybe somebody picked Mank. Who knows? Um, Who knows? I may. I think I did. Weirdly, yeah, yeah. We will, isn't, that, uh, isn't that where Richard predicted the father? I don't know. Wow, I, I, um, he's been on that for a long time. Um, <laughs> anyway, we'll be back next week with a more regular episode uh, for whatever is uh, coming out post-election. Um, in the meantime, you can find me and Joanna and Richard at VanityFair.com. Uh, you can find all of us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Chris. Uh, I'm at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. And Joe. Joe Reed. Reed is R-E-I-D. And Richard ran away, but he is at Rylaws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and the award for the explanation of where Richard went when he had to leave the podcast early goes to Joe Reed. He's carpetbagging around town. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.